In 2017, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs held a hearing listening to the mid-sized regional and large institution perspective. Harris Simmons is CEO of Salt Lake City-based Zion's Bank Corporation. It was a $65 billion bank back in 2017, and he voiced a concern common among those mid-sized institutions. We have felt, I think, perhaps disproportionately, uh, the the brunt of the burden of uh, complying with the enhanced prudential standards and other requirements of Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank being, of course, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, passed in 2010 after the 2008 financial crisis. The original act imposed all manner of regulations on banks, including minimal capital requirements. The goal, of course, was for banks to insulate themselves against the kinds of failures that triggered the 08 financial crisis. But Simmons, representing the Regional Bank Coalition, argued that the high cost of oversight slowed down the growth of these smaller banks. The banking regulatory apparatus has become a Rube Goldberg contraption with overlapping regulators, uh, redundant regulations, um, such as the various capital regimes, uh, scores of compliance, tripwires that cumulatively are overly expensive, sometimes conflicting in their objectives, and uh, they consume an enormous amount of management and board time and resources. Well, it's true. Zion's bank is orders of magnitude smaller than the three trillion juggernauts like J.P. Morgan Chase. But right now, Zion's bank is also the nation's 36th largest bank. Current value, $89.5 billion. So what did mid-sized really mean in 2017? I remember banks are pro- primarily between $10 billion and $50 billion in assets and serve customers and communities through more than 10,000 branches in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, three U.S. territories. That's Robert Hill, CEO of South State Bank, who was representing the Mid-Sized Bank Coalition. South State and other mid-sized banks have prudent business models that contribute to economic growth and support financial stability. Our company never lost money during the financial crisis. We never did subprime lending. We never stopped lending to our customers during the crisis. Well, another witness testified that day. Unlike the others, she did not represent the banks. And she argued that the banks under consideration that day, the so-called mid-sized banks, were neither mid-sized nor regional. Even the tiniest among them have more than $10 billion in assets, and the bigger ones, well over 300 and sometimes $400 billion in assets. True, they are small and less dependent on speculative trading than Wall Street megabanks, and perhaps they do deserve a lighter regulatory load. But if trying to help the smaller banks, you grant their request for a massive regulatory rollback, the principal beneficiaries of that deregulation will be Wall Street megabanks. Deregulation will reduce smaller banks' compliance costs, but it will also enable megabanks to expand their high-risk speculative trading, which is at the core of financial instability and crisis. Well, this is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and that was Sale Omarova, and we probably should have listened to her back in 2017 because, as you know, this month, or just this year, the United States experienced its second largest bank failure in the form of Silicon Valley Bank. 
Well, Salio Morova is a law professor at Cornell University who specializes in the regulation of financed financial institutions and banking law, and she joins us now. Professor Omarova, welcome to On Point. Thank you very much, Magna. Hi. It's very nice to be on your show. So tell me a little bit more about the concerns that you had uh, in 2017 when, you know, many of those so-called mid-sized and community banks were saying, look, Dodd-Frank is just, it's too onerous on us and limiting our, our ability to do business. So the point of that testimony was essentially to warn our policymakers against, once again, falling prey to this typical rhetoric that in the wake of the crisis, the 2008 crisis, Congress overregulated, the pendulum has swung way too far, so now there are high costs on all these banks and we really need to be more tailored or the regulation needs to be more tailored to their size and their complexity. And the main argument was that the credit isn't going to flow to regular people and working families and the communities that need that credit. And my point was that it is always said that somehow once the worst of the crisis passes, we really need to roll back all the requirements on banking institutions with respect to their risk management and how they serve their communities. And inevitably, that lays ground for the next wave of problems. And um, so that's that was the point I was trying to make and quite unsuccessfully at the time, unfortunately. Hmm. Now, uh, when they when the those mid-sized and community banks were saying that it would be hard for credit to flow adequately to the customers they serve. And you rightly note, you know, people and and small businesses, for example. Why were they saying that, though? Because, I mean, as you pointed out in your testimony, even at that time, we were talking about banks whose values were, you know, some of them were over $100 billion. Well, um, that's precisely the point, right? Um, Because banks, even at the time... Like you said, they were so profitable and they were paying large dividends and they were buying their shares back. This is called typically very nicely a return of capital to the shareholders. But do they need to return capital to the shareholders if really their business is to extend loans, to extend credit to small and medium-sized businesses in their communities? And they also were connecting capital regulation, which is essentially a requirement that uh, every privately owned bank has um, a certain equity cushion to Mm. protect creditors, meaning mostly depositors, from any losses should their assets, let's say loans or securities, go down in value. And banks don't like doing that because the more equity cushion you have, the less the return on equity is. And so the entire game for them is to increase the return on equity, um, pay dividends uh, to shareholders and buy shares back. So they look really great uh, in capital markets. So their share prices go up and perhaps the executive compensation goes up because it's tied to the share prices. So my point was that Congress should not be really fooled by this sort of high-flying rhetoric and really understand that if banks wanted to extend more credit to hardworking families and businesses, they really had the capacity to do so. It had nothing to do with capital regulation. Capital regulation is a risk management tool. Okay. So the the banks, though, were, from the best of my understanding, they were arguing that... um, one of the things that differentiated themselves from 
you know, the J.P. Morgans of the world, is that uh, even though may, they may have a hundred billion dollars in assets, they weren't necessarily. Uh, uh, they didn't necessarily propose the, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, present the same systemic risk, right? Like that the big ten mm. or twelve banks do, and so therefore, um, you know, even if um, we wanted to, in you know, open ourselves to the possibility that one of these mid-sized banks might fail, it wouldn't take down the economy as uh, we were fearful of as in, in two thousand eight. What do you make of that argument? It is. Of course, understandable that at the time in 2017, 2018, we were mostly focused on the risks that big banks presented because that was really the driver for the Dodd-Frank Act in the first place. That was what caused the previous uh, failure, the, the 2008 crisis. But having said that, we shouldn't forget that banking crises come in all kinds of shape and form. For example, we had the famous savings and loan crisis back in the late 80s and early 90s when a whole bunch of small thrifts, savings and loan institutions that basically never engaged in really high-speed derivatives trading or anything like that, but they were lending uh, extensively to various commercial real estate borrowers and investing in real estate in generally. And they were caught in very similar situation to the Silicon Valley Bank situation today when um, the central bank uh, started raising interest rates to uh, fight inflation, they were caught in the situation where, okay, these boring assets that we had, these uh, commercial real estate loans and securities are now losing money and we cannot get out of this uh, predicament. And that crisis back in the late 80s, early 90s, really was the first time when um, in at least in modern history, um, after the Great Depression, when so much, so many people lost money, and there was so much consternation, and you know, so many problems were uncovered, and a lot of legislation were passed afterwards. So I suppose that the lesson we should really draw from this is that uh, systemic risk is a very complex and fluid mm. phenomenon. Uh, it can come from unexpected places and yet exposed you know it's already always a 2020 vision right we can see oh how could not have we spotted this problem before yeah, yeah well we have about a minute before we have to take the first break and um we wanted to look back at 2017 in particular because many people are arguing that it uh that year and what happened afterwards paved the way to what we saw happen just recently with silicon valley bank so could you just summarize quickly what you think the main changes were that then came in 2018 when you after you said you had unsuccessfully lobbied to maintain regulations on mid and community banks so Congress in 2018 effectively raised the threshold for the size for banks that would be subject to so-called enhanced prudential supervision. In other words, subject to requirements uh, for, to undergo certain stress testing regularly, to uh, calculate the capital and liquidity ratios. How much liquid money will we have should there be a stress? And many other uh, requirements of that kind that were imposed on them by the Dodd-Frank Act. And because of that, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, to some extent afterwards, were, uh, you know, they issued rules that took those deregulatory f features even further. Okay. So I love that phrase, enhanced prudential supervision, i.e., 
bank smartly so you don't fail. But Professor Omarova, stand by for just a moment, because when we come back, we're going to talk in more detail about what exactly happened at Silicon Valley Bank, now that we have the background in mind for the changes that happened with ba- in banking regulation in 2018. So that's what we'll do in a minute. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today, Professor Saleh Omarova joins us. She's a professor of law at Cornell University and also is a former uh, special advisor for regulatory policy at the U.S. Department of Treasury. And we're talking about what makes a mid-sized bank, and does mid-size really mean that anymore in the United States? And of course, this is in light of uh, what has happened recently at Silicon Valley Bank. Now, here's President Joe Biden uh, on Monday noting that on top of needing to understand what went wrong at SVB, he says... The federal government needs to enforce stricter regulations on these so-called mid-sized banks again. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including the Dodd-Frank law to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Biden also spoke about some of the necessary next steps he believes needs to happen following these bank failures. There are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. And my administration, no one in my no one is above the law. Well, that was President Joe Biden last Monday. Joining us now is Peter Conti Brown. He's associate professor of financial regulation at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and co-director of the Wharton Initiative on Financial Policy and Regulation. Professor Conti Brown, welcome to you. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So I would love to have you help us understand what we know so far about what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. So where's the first place you would look? The first place to look is the bankers themselves. The business of banking has become 
vastly complex in by the 21st century, over many decades, even centuries, of increasing complexity. But it's also really simple to reduce. If you want to be a profitable bank, you borrow money at an interest rate, and then you lend it out at a higher interest rate. That difference is called net interest income, but it just means that's the business of banking. That's what you get to do to be profitable. Silicon Valley Bank went about their business of banking by borrowing money from a very concentrated clientele, all in Silicon Valley, and paid out to them an interest rate which was higher than the rate that they were getting on the other side of their balance sheet. So exactly backwards. And if you're wondering, how could sophisticated bankers do that? And my answer is, I don't think these were sophisticated bankers. I think they were very bad at the business of banking. So that's the very first place we look. And can, we should... can, you, can you hang on for just a second? Because you're right. As soon as you, you said that, my head popped up. I'm like, wait, that makes no sense. Um, you don't even necessarily need to be a banker to understand um, that if you're paying out more than you're bringing in, that's a problem if you want to make a profit. One would think that the uh, you know, so-called best and brightest in the tech world, world would have a, uh, like a handle on, on those basics. One would think. There's an old Saturday Night Live uh, uh, commercial about a bank that tries to make a lot of money just by making change and losing money in every transaction. And they were asked, how are you going to make money on this? And their answer, volume. Which is ridiculous, right? Because the more you do this, the more money you lose. And that's the Silicon Valley bank model. How are you going to make money on this that you're losing on every transaction? Their answer, volume. And, the, and what they did is they just exploded their depositor base. That's the liability side of their balance sheet, the money they owe to others, uh, in a, a single industry, so to speak. So the mega banks have so many problems, uh, but a... Lack of diversification is not one of them. They're engaged in all kinds of businesses and in all kinds of ways, and that's both on the liability side and the asset side. Silicon Valley Bank went all in on two bets, both bad. The first was on liabilities, let's explode our liability base, and the second is on the asset side. In 2020, they thought interest rates are zero. Let's put more than half of our assets in these plain vanilla mortgage-backed securities that pay 1.5%. And then let's just kind of ignore it for a few years, even as the Fed is sending a signal to everyone in the global economy, inflation's getting out of hand, we, need, we are going to start raising interest rates and we're going to raise them aggressively. And so far as we can tell, the bankers just, they just kept their heads in the sand during that entire time. Okay, so help us understand then, uh, in some you know, plain talk, why is the fact that the Fed, like you said, it went, basically went from, what, zero to four and a half percent in a short period of time. Why, why did that play into uh, the SVB story? Every time the uh, interest rates go up, then pre-existing assets that are paying a fixed interest rate become less valuable. Now, so long as the interest rates in the prevailing markets are less than the interest rate you're earning on your assets, they still become less valuable, but it's just not as big a problem. But then we watched as interest rates marched past, I mean, just blew kisses to the assets uh, uh, earning 1.5 interest rates and, and kept on going forward. And as that happened, that means that if Silicon Valley tried to sell one of its bonds worth $100, Whereas before, they might have gotten, uh, uh, had to trade it uh, for a little bit of a haircut. Now we're looking at a much steeper haircut. 
And that means that all of a sudden, if you to compare this to just uh, common folk like us, it'd be like looking in your, your bank account and saying, I know that it says I've got $5,000 in my bank account, but if I try to pull it out, I'm only going to be able to get $4,000 out of it or less. And that's what they were facing. They had this big bucket of money that if they tried to sell it on the market because interest rates at the Fed had gone up, then that bucket of money was just going to have a lot less uh, money in it than, than they had started. And I think they did that thing that so many of us do, which is they were terrified of the reckoning. And so they said, you know what, let's make that a problem for future Silicon Valley Bank. They'll <laughs> oh handle that. Yeah, that's tomorrow's SVB problem. Holy exactly. moly. Okay, Professor Omarova, so... Uh, let me just hear what you what you have to say about this, because Professor Conti Brown is basically describing, if I can put it in the most rudimentary terms, a complete lack of uh, diversity uh, in terms of Silicon Valley's both asset side and liability side, which set them up for a kind of fragility that, well, we saw what happened. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's exactly right. Uh, that's what's so striking about that particular institution's balance sheet. How can you not see the fact that all of your deposits are so flighty, it's so easy to withdraw uh, all these deposits because they, they are deposits by wholesale depositors, big big venture capital firms and their tech portfolio companies and so forth. And also all your money is basically sitting in this uh, portfolio of securities. But I think it's um, there is a reason why SVB was such a bad bank because it really wasn't a bank. It was more like an investment fund that had this sort of charter, this license to take deposits that are the cheapest form of funding. And it's interesting just to sort of add to Peter's uh, wonderful description of what went wrong there. SVB was uh, also a, a very powerful player in Silicon Valley beyond just providing deposits or even loans. It was a power broker. It had its own venture capital arm. It provided investment banking services. It introduced tech companies to various VC funders and so forth. And perhaps that's in part why all of those tech companies and VC firms uh, kept their money, their huge uninsured deposits at SVB and didn't break them up into small insured chunks. But that's basically telling us how complicated the picture is. Okay. And so the kind, those other kinds of services or activities that you just described SVB having done, um, is that common amongst these big mid-sized banks? Well, it's hard to tell because uh, SVB was somewhat unusual um, in terms of, you know, being the main bank uh, or whatever you call it, sitting uh, in Silicon Valley. But generally speaking, um, a lot of a lot of larger banks engage in a variety of these activities. I am not sure, and Peter, please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure that every mid-sized and regional bank necessarily does the venture capital type of funding, but they do. A lot of them do have concentrations on in their portfolios. It could be commercial real estate loans, for instance, or in certain regions, it could be concentration in terms of. Uh, their customers coming from a particular industry. It could be fossil fuel industry or something else. Right, Peter? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So banks um, below the top, you know, four for sure, but probably below the top 10 are known for something. What they're known for might be a region. Uh, that's one of the reasons we call them so-called regional banks. Uh, Sally is absolutely right to, uh, to kick the tires on that claim as these banks grow bigger and lose their regional identity. 
Uh, others focus on a single industry. So there is a lack of diversification uh, for for banks that we would call anything from the very smallest community banks all the way up through, again, I would probably put that at the top five or ten. Um, but I think Sally's putting her finger on something else that's really important. And uh, that requires our investigation. I don't. Th- I don't have an answer for this. I don't think we we collectively have an answer for this. But how prevalent is it for those banks uh, of any size to say to the customers of one uh, uh, category of financial services, say deposits, that they also, if they will uh, uh, do this this other uh, uh, this other kind of financial services, then they must do both. Silicon Valley Bank had a huge pile of exclusivity agreements. The FDIC issued a statement the day after they took it over saying, yeah, you still have to honor those contractual obligations. Basically saying all of you depositors that ran away from Silicon Valley Bank, you got to come back because you're legally uh, required to do so. Now, the way those work is you got a venture capital uh, fund that gives uh, $10 million on a Series A to a portfolio company. That means they're just, here's $10 million. It's equity financing. Um, go forth and, and make your, your smartphone app or whatever. And then uh, the Silicon Valley, uh, the venture capital fund has a pre-existing relationship with Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe, in fact, because the partner at that venture capital fund received a 50-year mortgage at a uh, below market rate. Totally legal. Uh, awfully, awfully gross in my view, um, and then says, you got to take these $10 million and you got to put it at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh-huh. Silicon Valley Bank then makes them sign a contract saying, hey, you've got the $10 million here. We're also going to give you some loan financing that you're going to need. But if you sign on the dotted line on the loan, which you kind of need, then you're not allowed to take that $10 million out. And what we don't know is how many of those uninsured deposits, which constituted 97% of their deposit liabilities, uh, were subject to these kinds of tying arrangements. This is an issue that we need to investigate better. Silicon Valley Bank is not the only one that does this. What I don't have a good sense of is how prevalent it is uh, at banks of, of any size and if it's correlated to some of the other uh, risk-taking that we don't want to see. Okay. So in a few minutes, we're going to talk about uh, what we will theorize, what, if anything, might have been different if those uh, original Dodd-Frank regulations that Professor Omarova so eloquently um, argued for in 2017 hadn't been modified in 2018. We're going to do that in a few minutes. But Professor Conti Brown, I'm still quite taken by your um your assertion that what we see here is just a spectacular example of bad banking, okay? Because I'm looking at um, the the career of Silicon Valley Bank's CEO, um, uh, Greg Becker, and it seems like he's been in banking his entire professional career. His first job out of college was with Comerica Bank in a, a Michigan, in a Detroit uh, branch, and then he opened a couple of other branches in different places, moved to California, followed his manager to Silicon Valley Bank, and worked his way up the ranks from from loan officer to eventually uh, COO and then CEO. One would think that that's isn't that adequate experience to kind of have a pretty good sense about how the financial system works? Well, my answer is the same as before. One would think. Magna, uh, I I think what happened here is that Silicon Valley Bank lost its way. I saw on Twitter, and I'm in a fr- I, I've forgotten who who said it, but I thought it was a really excellent point. That uh, for all purposes, Silicon Valley Bank was a shadow bank. When you have 97 percent of your liabilities as uninsured deposits, then you're not actually acting like a bank. And I I like that so much. I would go further. It was a venture capital shadow bank. 
it wanted to be in the tech scene, not as a bank. And in fact, it even owned a fund of funds. It invested in some of these companies with some of its other arms. It even did the thing that I had never heard of before this this crisis, that it would, in its loan portfolio to these to these startups, it would put warrants on the loans. These are these are legal obligations that can trigger uh, the conversion of uh, of a loan into equity. And that makes you a venture capitalist. Now, bank regulations forbid that kind of mechanism over a long duration. You can't actually own equity uh, indefinitely, but you can own it for a little bit. And that's what they were doing. They were just trying to be equity, techie, uh, venture capital type players. And in the process, they lost their touch of what is the business of banking. Mm. So when we talk about all of this and just how, how just, the, uh, uh, just the spectacular mismanagement of risk, uh, which doesn't look at 2008. I mean, 2008 was a spectacular mismanagement of risk, but it was mismanagement of risk that nobody, least of all the bankers, least of all the bank supervisors, really understood until uh, a, a long time after the entire system erupted in flame. These are the kinds of risks that all of us understand. Uh, the bankers uh, in most other banks, let's be clear, most other banks faced exactly the same risk profile and and navigated it. And that leads to the next question, which is, where were the bank supervisors in this? They are in the business of co-managing uh, both idiosyncratic risk and systemic risk. Uh, and And the question is, how could a bank that's so heavily regulated and supervised, even after 2018, be allowed... Uh, uh, to to do what is just financial mm. mismanagement 101. Well, um, also just so, so we should note that uh, there's there's new there was news that uh, uh, bef- even before a couple of weeks before Silicon Valley Bank's um, dire super terrible financial circumstances were made public uh, in earlier this month that uh, Greg Becker CEO had sold. Three and a half, three and a half million dollars worth of stock that he had in the bank, um, but we have a minute to go before the next break. And Professor Omarova, I wanted to quickly ask you: these phrases that Professor Conti Brown is using, shadow bank, it wasn't a bank. There was mismanagement of risk. The 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 kinds of investments and risks that uh, it was t- uh, SVB was taking, it actually has some echoes to what was going on before two thousand eight in the the big banks that contributed to the finan- contributed to the financial crisis, um, or am I wrong? No, that's precisely correct. Um, before 1999, there was a law on the books, the Glass-Steagall that prohibited effectively uh, any kind of deposit-taking institution to be affiliated with a securities firm or venture capital firm of the kind that basically SVB has become. And then after 1999, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, a particular law, allowed for this affiliation, and here we are today. Okay. Well, Professor Saleo Morova and Professor Peter Conti-Brown Stand by for just a minute. And as I said, when we come back, we're going to think through what, if anything, might have been different um, if the regulatory regime around these, quote unquote, mid-sized banks hadn't changed in 2018. So that's when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
as long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're joined by Peter Conti-Brown. He's Associate Professor of Financial Regulation at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And Saleh Omarova joins us as well. She's a professor of law at Cornell who specializes in the regulation of financial institutions. Okay, so let's talk more about, again, what the changes were in 2018 and say they had not been made what difference would that have made? So, Professor Omarova, um, a little earlier, you talked about relaxing the requirement for stress testing uh, on these banks that are, you know, not in the trillion-dollar range. Again, I keep calling them mid-sized banks, but you know, mm-hmm. a bank with two hundred fifty billion dollars in assets doesn't feel very mid-sized to me. But, um, but so, if those stress testing uh, requirements were still in place, do you think it would? Is it possible for us to know if it would have detected a problem? Well. We should hope they would have detected the problem. It's, of course, always difficult to engage in this kind of counter, counterfactual scenarios, right? Who knows? And a lot, of course, depends on how rules, even the best of rules, are implemented in practice by uh, the supervisors and bank, bank examiners that actually work with banks like SVB. But generally speaking, there would have been a, a clear regime of much stricter oversight and much stricter process for the supervisors and perhaps other regulatory authorities to basically watch over SVB's managers' shoulders and force them to engage in certain scenario playing and uh, run certain models and test whether or not, let's say, a particular change in some kind of macroeconomic environment, like the change in interest rates, would deplete their cushion of equity too quickly and make uh, depositors nervous. And if those types of exercises are mandated and constantly uh, conducted with the supervisory uh, oversight and involvement, then it is harder for the managers to make these decisions that are basically, oh, look, you know, we know that there is this risk, interest rate risk, but we want to sort of keep collecting the interest payments on the bonds we already have rather than rebalancing the portfolio and possibly taking loss in this quarter. So there had to be some kind of an independent or at least an external uh, set of eyes. And that's what we've removed effectively by relaxing many of those requirements, the stress test, the liquidity requirements. Um, and uh, we basically exempted, or Congress exempted, the smaller banks, these mid-sized banks from, um, let's say, filing living wills and mm. so on and so forth. Mm. Professor Conti-Brown, have stress tests been um, uh, effective uh, with the banks that are still required to do them? I would say yes and no. The results are mixed, and this is why I'm 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 not convinced either way. I'm pretty agnostic on whether uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which was uh, ostensibly subject to a a biannual stress test once it crossed uh, the the threshold, 
uh, of $100 billion, uh, but we didn't have any of those results, and, and the reasons are, are still mysterious. I'm agnostic on whether this would have made a difference, which is an indictment of the stress test regime. It's not uh, an indictment of, uh, uh, it's not a defense of, uh, of Silicon Valley Bank or of the regulators. The reason is because the stress tests are, are, were created in a, an environment where we look at the rapid depreciation of assets, we look at recessions when interest rates plummet, we look at financial instability. Uh, and so all of the scenario analysis that stress tests are currently modeled to do is, are not anchored in an idea that the Fed itself is going to cause financial instability by jacking up interest rate prices so fast, so far. And so there's a good uh, 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 explanation out there that says even if the stress test were there, it would not have made a difference because Silicon Valley Bank's risk mismanagement was so elementary, was so simple, and the scenario that we were encountering was so well telegraphed. This wasn't a question of either contagion or surprise. Uh, it was just a question of not understanding that when interest rates go up, you have to make changes to the asset side of your balance sheet because your liabilities will follow those interest rates. But that the 2008 law, I think, is absolutely pivotal, pivotal. And I think both Congress, then regulators, then supervisors share blame with the bankers in missing this. So I don't want to say, by focusing on stress tests, I think we may be focusing on something that doesn't carry the same explanatory value that focusing on the law itself and all the dominoes that the law triggered uh, uh, would explain. Sure. Okay. So so I will let us uh, explore that bigger picture of the law overall. But I'm just trying to sort of break it down into uh, digestible pieces a little bit here. But what about mm -hmm. if, um, you know, the the liquidity requirements were, were still in place so that at least, I don't know, the depositors would be protected. Any justification to that, Professor Conte Brown? So again, this is we we're still waiting for the dust to settle okay. uh, um, because the both the liquidity coverage ratio, which by regulation was pulled back in 2019 um, by the Fed uh, and the stress tests and the living wills, which were part of the Dodd-Frank uh, Act, which were rolled back for, for Silicon Valley Bank in 2018, uh, Again, one would think that those put in place would have given us a really clear sense both to prevent crisis and then in the, its, its event to mitigate its consequences without having to trigger a systemic risk exception by the government and a declaration that we are in a financial crisis, which is what occurred um, last weekend. Um, the, the biggest issue, and, and, and Saleh made this point, and I think it's, it's exactly correct, is the 2018 law shifted the culture and priorities of pre-existing tools which were robust enough to have seen all of these risks, to have alerted the bankers to these risks, and when they failed to do anything about it, to, to take control of, uh, of a, a, a plane that was going down. Uh, and, and what we didn't see is any of that ultimate action. There are press reports now saying we saw a lot of frenzy over the last year from supervisors uh, ringing bells saying this is not going well at Silicon Valley Bank. What we didn't see is enough uh, 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 urgency at the highest levels of the Fed to say, all right, we hear you. We have got to figure this out, including by resolving the bank in a more orderly way. Okay. Now we are getting to the portion of the conversation about the government's and the Fed's response. 
How much uh, of what happened at Silicon Valley Bank should rest on the shoulders of the Fed? I mean, Professor Omarova, uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, has been spending all weekend slamming the Fed, saying they bear a lot of blame here, not only for what Peter Conti Brown said, of maybe not paying close enough attention or acting with enough urgency earlier, but also, I mean, she's going after uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell for the, you know, his aggressive schedule of, of interest rate hikes. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, so this is really a fascinating episode uh, when we're seeing that, um, you know, the Fed is wearing two hats and there are two different hats. On the one hand, it is a central bank that is uh, managing um, the state of our economy using basically one tool, which is interest rates. Mm -hmm. That's monetary policy. Uh, The other hat it wears is that of a bank supervisor, which is where a lot of the failures specific, for example, to SVB Bank are clearly uh, showing up today, right? And it is so interesting that uh, in both of those capacities, what Fed has done ultimately contributed to the failure of SVB and then the panic that ensued. And so the Fed does have to bear a lot of blame. And just like Peter said, dust hasn't settled yet. We're still... Uh, We still need a lot more information about what exactly happened. But uh, the bigger point I think we should start making right now is uh, why is it that uh, in this day and age with our complex economy so interconnected, we still only really have monetary policy interest rates as the only lever that deals with uh, all kinds of problems in our economy. Our economy is imbalanced in many ways. And uh, the only way we can sort of act upon it is to raise interest rates, which in effect uh, hurt um, banks or investment funds like SVB was. And this is the bigger bigger question I think we need to yeah. really seriously engage with. I love this question. So what would be your what would be an, an, another tool in addition to uh, interest rates or monetary policy that you would have us use more vigorously? I think that it's not about any specific tool, but it is about understanding the importance of thinking about sort of uh, credit policy, economic policy, industrial strategy Uh with respect to what kind of economy do we have? What are the imbalances? It's no surprise, for example, that SVB Signature and Silvergate Bank, the trio that brought us this crisis, were deeply uh, involved with tech and crypto industry. Those are the industries that tend to experience huge booms when money is cheap. Right. But they that sort of dynamic takes away our attention and the resources and the policy uh, sort of direction from channeling credit into other sectors of the economy. And that's what we need to think. So this is a great point. But, you know, in the uh, we're we're living in the aftermath of the era of uh, financial deregulation, uh, uh, aren't we? And so therefore, with the financialization of everything, I don't know, people who have power, influence, their hands on policy levers, money mm-hmm. are going to be focused on the things that help them make more money, right? I mean, you're talking about um, looking at the economy or ways to support the economy in completely different ways. Like you mentioned industrial policy. How much is, you know, the, uh, uh, the banker of, you know, one of the the big 12 or even the middle, you know, 50 going to care about that? Of course, they're not going yeah. to care about that. That's not their job. And that's precisely the point. We need, at the very least, some form of a national 
um, infrastructure investment bank, some some entity that would stand um, side by side with the Fed that can then focus on monetary policy and monetary stability and really think about, well, uh, why do we have to rely on SVB or SVB client banks uh, to, for example, promote and finance innovation? Shouldn't we also help those kinds of private banks that are interested in that business to really um, put the the you know, the power of the public behind that. So these are really big questions. Not mm-hmm. everybody agrees on these answers, but I think that at some point we really need to start asking those big questions. Professor Conti Brown, let me turn back to you here because uh, I don't quite want to leave our scrutiny of the Fed behind just yet. I mean, it sounds like what's being described here is the Fed essentially had two jobs, <laughs> just two jobs re- regarding Silicon Valley Bank and um, did neither of them well. Uh, the Fed says it's going to engage in an investigation. Senator Warren wants an independent investigation of the Fed's role in this. Um, what do you think about that? I think that Senator Warren is exactly correct. Uh, I think that the Fed, uh, uh, even if we can stipulate that the Fed will will do this beautifully and perfectly with with total transparency and objectivity, the minute they push publish on that report, no one will believe it. They won't believe it because the Fed's internal assessments of the Fed's own actions are going to be seen through a lens of protecting the Fed's many and diverse and sometimes conflicting goals. The Fed throughout its history has been one of the most politically adept and politically cautious institutions in government. One of the reasons why it is not only uh, extended a streak of 120 years in, in, in uh, a very topsy-turvy monetary environment of gold st- standard coming in and out and uh, changes in the international monetary framework, uh, but also expanded its reach to include so much else. And as a result of this political caution, uh, I, I just don't think it's credible for the Fed to do an internal assessment that's of value to anyone other than uh, internal Fed actors. What we need is an outside review to be able to pose and ask and, and answer some of the questions that Saleh has mentioned, that, that others have mentioned. What caused all of this to break down and where are the, where, what are the ways that we might think across a broad political spectrum about possible solutions? Mm. I, don't, I don't have the answer to those, those questions. I'm not even sure that I'm asking the right questions. And for that, uh, as, a, as a Fed watcher and Fed expert, as a Fed historian, I want an independent, non-Fed uh, uh, body to get to the bottom of this with subpoena power, with uh, total cooperation from uh, all aspects of the government, uh, so that we can have these kinds of deba- debates in public. This is the place where public accountability of our central banking functions is its most important. Mm. We do not delegate accountability for the Fed to the Fed. So finally, I want to talk about the actions that were taken by the federal government. On March 12th, uh, regulators approved plans to backstop depositors and financial institutions associated with SVB. The Federal Reserve apparently opened a separate facility to provide loans for institutions affected by, uh, I guess, SVB and and Signature Bank. So we um, did not get a chance to see, and it's a scary question, but we did not get a chance to see what would happen if the two banks were allowed to fail. Would they have posed a systemic risk to the financial system? We don't know because the government did step in. I mean, come on, the moral hazard question, I I can't avoid it. 
So, Peter Conti Brown, like, should these banks have been allowed to fail? Magna, one of two things is true. Either, either the Fed, FDIC, and Treasury overreacted here and provided for very wealthy individuals and, uh, uh, and startup and uh, other companies, uh, some extremely large, some smaller, um, supported by concentrated wealth in our country. Uh, and either the, the government then walked in and said to these wealthy institutions, you don't have to bear the downside risk of your choices. Uh, you're not legally entitled to this government support, but we're going to give it to you. So either it's that, which is, uh, which is toxic to our politics and to our society, or the Fed, Treasury, and FDIC responded as we want financial crisis fighters to respond, which is uh, our banking system is, is melting down, and this is a banking crisis, and so we have to hold our noses and guarantee uh, these, these private actors, because if we don't, then everything will stop. If the second is true, then we have to ask ourselves, what was the point of the last 15 years of financial reform? And if the first is true, you're asking, what is what is the point of uh, even having any regulation if we're always going to step in and save people from their own bad decisions? That's right. Well, Peter Conti Brown, Associate Professor of Financial Regulation at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Salio Morova, professor of law at Cornell University, specializing in the regulation of financial institutions and banking law. Professor Omarova, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> <laughs>